Hi, welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. I'm Paul Schulman. And I'm Chad Swimmer. We are coming at you from the unceded land of the northern Pomo and the coast Yuki, now known as Casper, California. Our show delves into opinions, perspectives, and scientific research on the ecology and politics of the Redwood Coast region. On today's show, we're going to take a look at fire and forest management. We are going to go to the Emerald Earth Sanctuary in Anderson Valley. We are going to speak with Aveja Hamel, Tom Shaver, and their son Garnet about the forest management that they've been doing and about their prescribed burning program. Incredible excitement and, you know, there's, there, of course, fear, but this community feeling of like, wow, we're doing something. And I could just hear them across the property, like laughing and yelling, you know, talking to each other. And in that team group, we got like a big area of brush to go up pretty big. It's pretty fun. I think that's why we were laughing. <laughs> 95% of your fire safety happens before you even put any fire on the ground. Next, we're going to speak with Kyle Farmer from Potter Valley. Kyle is a community education specialist for the UC Cooperative Extension in Hopland, California. He is also a co-founder of the Mendocino County Prescribed Burn Association. This show is a production of KZYX, listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond, and of Disquiet Media. Check out our other offerings at disquietmedia.blue. Now we're going to go to more of Gene Parsons on the banjo, live from Camp One Amphitheater at the historic Mendocino Woodlands on the Big River. We are here in cyberspace with Judy Aveja Hummel and Tom Shaver and their son Garnet. For 15 years, they have been resident stewards at Emerald Earth Sanctuary, an intentional community in the hills above Anderson Valley. There are six to eight full-time residents who care for the land, grow a good portion of their own food, maintain and develop earthen dwellings, and sustain a community designed to benefit rather than deplete the planet. The land is owned by Emerald Earth Sanctuary, a 501c3 nonprofit. They are also board members of the nonprofit. Emerald Earth has been doing sustainable forestry, operating on a non industrial timber management plan created by forester Chris Blinko, who you have heard from on this show and on other editions of the Ecology Hour as well. Judy, Tom, and Garnet, welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Good. Good to be here. So can you start? with how you came to Anderson Valley and Emerald Earth? Well, this is Beha, and um, yeah, we had heard about Emerald Earth for many years and been involved in the intentional communities movement in other places, and we had a newborn 
baby thing who's now, you know, taller than me. But at the time, we were looking for a place with other kids and wanting to live rurally and quote unquote sustainably. Uh, and we knew about Emerald Earth. So we moved here. We had some friends who had just had a child also who were here. So it made a lot of sense. Where did you move from? Most immediately, we were in Costa Rica. Uh, we were working on a eco-village project down there. We were we were having a new baby, and things were not going so well there. And so um, we we chose to come here. Uh, before that, we were in Santa Cruz. I, I lived in Santa Cruz for 25 years, off and off, and that's where Bea uh, and I met. So, Garnet, do you have any memories of living anywhere else besides there? No, I don't remember living anywhere else. Uh. Yeah, <laughs> that was pretty little. I'm wondering if you can uh, describe the property, the Emerald Earth property, for instance, how many acres it is, uh, what was the property before you became part of it, before it became a 501c3. Let's see, it's a, it's a, the property is 189 acres, and there are similar properties like that. A, a lot of our neighbors are 160-acre you know, uh, areas of land. It's a little bit of a, it's a valley, creek running through it. And so, the, and the property goes from ridge to ridge. So we have a, a north facing slope, that, which is mostly redwood, uh, you know, conifer and um, a south facing slope, which is mostly oak with some, um, you know, mixed hardwood, some conifers too. Uh, I don't know, we should mention right from the outset, you know, we're, we're in uh, Northern Pomo territory we understand the the name of the the tribe that was in in Anderson Valley was the Tabate people, and so you know there's there there's that history of the the native folks that we we'd like to honor. And uh, then around the turn of the century, we we understand that it, there was a clear cut that came through here, and a lot of the the old growth was taken. And then there was at that point, it, this was a sheep ranch. And even the, the we have evidence that that some of the 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 stumps were actually burned to inhibit the regrowth, so that there would be more of a pasture uh, situation here. But the apparently the the redwoods were so vigorous that that by the '50s there was another harvest uh, timber harvest, and also in the '70s another timber harvest. Wow. Um, Somewhere between the 50s and the 70s, the, the sheep ranching was discontinued. And then the land was bought, what would you, how would you characterize? Lawyers for Max Am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, Pacific Lumber Lawyers used this as a hunting ground. Oh, my There's gosh. A, the only building on the property is, a, is an old hunting. Oh, the only building that was on the property at the time was an old hunting lodge. The property was bought, yeah, 33 years ago uh, by some people who were um, interested in having it as a retreat for earth spirituality. People from Berkeley who would come up here and do Wiccan rituals and, and that neo-pagan stuff. 20 years ago, some people came through who were permaculturists, natural builders, who started um, you know, making gardens and, and creating uh, cabins and, 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 and such. I, I'd say we're, we're sort of a part of a, another wave who's really interested in interacting with the land, thinning and working with animals. We have, we've had goats here for a long time, uh, cows, chickens, 
sheep. Basically, two sources of water. We have some springs where a pipe was just uh, drilled into the hillside and uh, delivers water. Uh, we have a couple of situations like that 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 we get some um, water from. But also, we have a well that was drilled about a hundred feet into the ground, and then it's pumped up to. Uh, we have a, a ten thousand gallon ferro cement tank that then delivers water uh, by gravity to a lot of the property. Can you talk about the process of becoming a working non-industrial timberland? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, one thing to note about Emerald Earth Sanctuary is that we have a non-traditional ownership model. So we are run by a nonprofit that has a board that uh, is operated by consensus. And so as you might imagine, those um, neo-pagan folks who came up here in the 80s were environmentalists from the Bay Area. And this, we, we all were around during you know, the timber wars, except for Garnet. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so the idea of logging, the concept of logging was, was very you know, uh, unpleasant. And even every time we cut a tree to, you know, we, we cut some trees to make room for the gardens and build uh, structures and, and you know, everything that was, that's been cut here, until we moved here had been milled here and there was always like prayer and ritual for each tree and like thanking the tree and this, you know, sort of deep reverence. And, but as our understandings grew of, of forestry and how to care for the forest and walking out in what was here and seeing this, you know, third growth, very dense, no, almost no understory, uh, not even like little herbaceous plants on the ground in the redwood area. It's just just duff and and bare soil. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this understanding that we slowly developed of like, oh, this is not a healthy forest. This forest has been, you know, denigrated and it's it's not healthy. It's not fire safe. It, it doesn't have biodiversity. Um, sudden oak death is coming through. The, the tan oaks, and just this sense that like we need to do some thinning. And so this was already in the conversation when we moved here 15 years ago, and they had gone out just with on their own with chainsaws and done some very small scale thinning and seeing, you know, good results and more open, openness underneath and, and other plants starting to be able to come up and so the more we, we looked at it and the more we learned, the more we realized that we really needed to put our hands on the land. Mm-hmm. And I would say that not everyone in the organization reached that decision at the same time <laughs> and in the same way. <laughs> and so it was a really complicated um, conversation and very um, painful at times for people uh, to, to, to recognize that not all logging is, um, you know, the, the, what, what Pacific Lumber was doing. You know, it's not all this, this clear-cutting, you know, rapacious process and that there, there could be another way to do it. 
and that it would benefit the land and it would benefit biodiversity and it would benefit water, water infiltration. And, you know, we have so many goals. We have a goal of raising, you know, you talked about our, our water and our wells and our springs, and we have this creek that does not run year round. And one of my goals has been to help it run year round. You know, there's all these reasons why we wanted to do this. And so I'd say in 2015, maybe, we really started full force working with with Chris Blanco and making plans for the timber harvest. Just the, the non-industrial timber management plan calls for a series of harvests over 100 years mm-hmm. uh, in 10-year increments. And so the, starting with harvests that are that r- roughly take about a third of the stand. And so, and the idea is that, and, and they've had this figured out, you know, through the science of, of, of logging, that if you do that type of thinning, the, the growth, the, the extra growth that you get from the, the, the trees that are, that are remaining is about three to 4% more per year than they would have grown had the, uh, w- w- without the thinning. So what we're actually doing is creating a, 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 a growth rate that overcomes the, the take. And, that, and, that, that, and we do, we're not going in clear cutting, uh, nor are we doing the entire thinning process. We're doing it incrementally a little bit uh, and spacing that out uh, in 10-year uh, intervals. Yeah, it's very obvious for me when I'm looking at on my property here in Casper, a mile from the ocean, where the neighbor's property uh, has not been touched since there was a clear cut here in 1960. And our property was cleaned up a lot. And the trees are in clumps on the neighbor's properties, you know, these fairy rings of redwoods, and they're all, you know, 10, 12, 14 inch trees. And here you end up with a third as many trees and they're three times as big in 60 years. And I think I want to just comment here that one of our, our goal is not to, our goal as Emerald or Sanctuary is not to increase our timber yield. It is to regrow an old growth forest. Yeah. And to, to bring, and, and to make that happen faster. And so that actually was a big issue in this process is you know, Chris was incredible, like really, despite the fact that we kept having to remind him because the training that he got as a forester and what he's dealing with, I think usually in landowners is people whose goal it is to maximize their income. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, because we are a nonprofit and, you know, Tom and Garnet and I and the other people living here have no, we have no equity in this. So we're not getting any more money ourselves personally out of increasing yield, there were some crucial differences in how we planned to do the cut. And um, that was, it was, it was, we had to keep reminding Chris. (laughs) And I would say it was not something that the loggers, the logging company that we worked with was very willing to work with. And that became really apparent as it was happening, which was unfortunate. And I think it wasn't a group, it wasn't a, a logging company that Chris had ever worked with before. And we could go into all the reasons why we ended up with this logging company. 
But to me, there's this is a we're working at a new level. We don't necessarily know what we're doing. I mean, I think places like Sanctuary Forest up in Humboldt, and there's other you know people researching who trying to figure out how to do this. But it was definitely a lot of heartbreak on my end to watch the loggers not honor our requests. I mean, they didn't, they certainly didn't cut anything. We didn't, we told them not to cut because they weren't allowed, but they didn't cut everything. We asked them to cut. They didn't um, do the, the yarding and logging and the ways that we had requested. And so, um, you know, I, whereas I'm still glad we did it, I would say there's still a long way to go in the, the logging industry to make it more sustainable. So no matter how good intention the landowners are, you really got to be vigilant. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like over the, the process that the timber operator became more conscious of your needs? Absolutely not. No, (laughs) no, I think they actually became irritated with us having requests and I, you know, I'm not going to name, name anybody by name, but I would, if you ask me, I will not recommend that particular timber operator. I think you mentioned Tom, you mentioned that you do, you mill wood there. Can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Over the years, we've we've done uh, milled a lot of wood for our, our, our buildings here. Um, but uh, yeah, I just purchased a, a Lucas sawmill. It's a circular sawmill uh, that'll make a, a ten inch cut. We we had the uh, the logging company separate out a few of the butt logs for me uh, to mill. Yeah, so it's a good tool to have around. And. Prior to that, we, um, we hired Nathan Anderson from Anderson Alternatives on the coast. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour with Chad Swimmer and Paul Schulman. And that was the group Iron Horse covering Fire on the Mountain, a song originally written by Marshall Tucker Band. We are speaking with Abeja, Tom, and Garnet of Emerald Earth Sanctuary about prescribed burning and land management in harmony with the natural world. So we have some questions about the prescribed burning that you're doing, and Paul has it queued up, but I was wondering if we can direct this first to Garnet. Yeah, we just wanted to find out what your experience has been doing prescribed burns and, and, and how that learning process might transfer to the greater community. We did some grass burning and just realized that, yeah, it was a really cool thing to do and was going to be very beneficial and then we did uh we like we're talking with uh andres and the fire chief and doing a bunch we talked to a bunch of other folks that knew more about burning and slowly were have become more comfortable with it yeah done a bunch and seen that on the our ridge lines we did uh, lines like I don't know, 50 feet down each ridge line. We've noticed, I've noticed actually that there's a lot of like more grass coming up under the trees and it's just way more open from that. Obviously you want to be prepared in case some part of the burn starts leaving the area that you are working. And, and so are you prepared uh, 
with pumper trucks or how, how are you ready to contain it? Uh, we just have a uh, backpack pumps mostly, but mm-hmm. we've also had a like tank, uh, like a, I don't know, a pump tank on that just goes in the bed of a pickup truck. Right. We borrowed that from Andre. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things too that that we really learned is that 95% of your fire safety happens before you even put any fire on the ground. Mm-hmm. You know, you're really paying attention to wind and weather and humidity and you know what what's happening in the moment and what is predicted to be happening. And when you burn at the right moments it's 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 my, it's it's very easy to control, and then you know we're also we also are out there with McLeods, which are a, a firefighting tool, and other hand tools. So and we have a bunch of people. So usually, although we have done some smaller ones, just the three of us even. But the, the there's this. It, it, it can sound really scary when you're like, oh well, all we have is a hand pump, but. You know, if you've really paid attention to where the wind's coming from, what's downwind, you've cut your control lines well so that there's a there's a line of bare dirt between what's burning and, and what hasn't burned or what you don't want to burn. You know, it's and even when we have, I can say we have had it jump that line. We, you know, there's been somebody right there, either with a backpack sprayer or a McLeod or something. So we've never had anything get out of control where we're just like, Oh, you know, we've never had to call the fire department and be like, come and help us. And, but we only do small, we do small sections at a time. We haven't done multiple acres at a time. We'll do one or two acres tops Uh at a time. Sorry. How many burns have you done? We, we've done a sort of a variety of, of scenarios. Like, uh, we, we, we've done the scenario where we invite the prescribed burn association up, Andre and, and um, Andrea of the, the fire department, uh, the local fire department, and, and really, you know, we have a couple of crews and some large areas that we're trying to trying to cover, and and then we've we've done it just the three of us, you know, and and there's other areas in between where we just invite some people over to do a, a sort of an in between scale burn, so it's been uh, somewhere between a dozen and twenty. Uh, burns, I, w- I would say, wow. uh, sessions. I'd like to say that there's there's a lot. Um, Abeja mentioned and Garnet mentioned are you know doing fuel, uh, do- doing control lines. Let, we've been actually getting some uh, grant funding to do fuel break work, which is that there there isn't really funding directly out there to put in control lines for prescribed burning. But there is funding out there to do fuel break work. Mm-hmm. And that's from the uh, NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service, and this program, the North Bay Forest Improvement Program, uh, NBFIP. Uh, that's where we've gotten grants to do fuel break lines, like 50 feet to 150 to 100 feet foot wide swaths, where we uh, do thinning of small trees and limbing up limbing up exist, uh, remaining trees up 10 feet. Uh, and then, and then we deal with that slash by either chipping or burning 
And so that's the context of burning is that we've gone around the whole property with a very wide control line Mm -hmm. so that we feel safe doing smaller sections, knowing that we have a really very well defensible line all around, around, around the property. That's great, which works both ways because then fire that starts outside your property is less likely to get in. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's sort of to get, to get into the, the, the maybe community aspect of it, we've been starting to talk with our neighbors about coordinating that and, and having control lines, fuel breaks, go across property lines and, and you know, extend that along ridge, ridge lines taking a more of a neighborhood view of, of how to create a, a fire safe area and really appreciate working with the prescribed burn association working. We, we've gone and done, uh, helped other uh, landowners with, with burns. And that, um, I think that's, that's sort of the next frontier of this kind of work is working on the neighborhood and watershed level. You know, yeah. how, how do we really, make this a community thing that, that we're doing all together. Right, because the topography really ends up defining where the lines ought to be put and doesn't have anything to do with property lines necessarily. Exactly. So it takes that kind of collaboration. I can see that. Not easy, though, when you have private property owners. Because of the topography, we wanted to burn on our neighbor's property and got permission from, from her to, to do that. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. That's great. I mean, there's a level of uh, trust that you're helping develop, I, I would imagine, in your neighborhood that uh, is yeah. really uh, beneficial to the entire community. So what do you see on the ground after the burns, like the, the longer term, the first burns you did? How does it look now? I think there's a lot of them. Um, for a little while, there wasn't much coming up, but now I've noticed a lot of little shoots coming up, like grass and small trees. There is some poison oak comes back too, but it, it, it burns it back and then it just shoots up little shoots again afterwards. Perfect but for goats. Some areas where it got a little too hot in some places where there hasn't been much coming back for a little while, but... I mean, a lot of this we just did this spring or fall. So, you know, it's it's hard to say long-term what it's going to do, but it it looks really good, I, I think. You know, it looks, it looks much more open, and there's some, like, weird mushrooms coming out of some of the trees. Yeah, I really – one of my regrets is that we weren't able to find folks who wanted to come in, like, more academically study here. We we made some test plots ourselves and t- did a sort of very basic bio blitz, but there were so many details that we were holding in addition. So if anybody out there listening knows of anyone who does is doing research in the forestry area, you know, we'd love to have this land be used for research and education. Here's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. Oh, we are almost out of time, but I'd love to have uh, maybe the three of you, or however you want to do it, just take us through. Maybe uh, tell us a story about one of the burns. How you, you know, how you felt before you did it, and how it went. Should we go with the the sort of the big one that Andres and the PBA? Sure. sure. 
you know, we've worked with a lot of different people, so just and including, you know, Andres Avila is the Andres we keep talking about, who's the fire chief of the Anderson Valley Volunteer Fire Department, and Angela DeWitt is the uh, is a okay. battalion chief. Um, and we've also worked with um, Tara. I want to bring them in. The Tribal Eco Restoration Alliance has come and helped us some, which has been great. They're based out of Water Valley, I believe. Um, but. Is that? Mike Jones. Mike Jones. Yeah, Mike Jones from the Prescribed Burn Association has been incredibly helpful as well. So the first kind of the largest burn we did, we all came together here. Mike and Andres was our fire burn boss. So he was sort of organizing everything. And it was very, it was very sort of super organized handouts and maps and contingency plans and um, but there was also just such an ex- the feeling is is kind of what I wanna I wanna evoke was this this incredible excitement and you know there's there of course fear but this community feeling of like wow we're doing something you know instead of being in reaction and fear mode to like catastrophic wildfire and oh my god this could happen to our house we were in proactive mode and there was just such joy we had a, a teen of a team of teens yeah, so yeah. that went with with one um one of the more experienced people from the prescribed burn association took a whole group of like five teens and they just went off on their you know not we all had our certain areas that we were working in and i could just hear them across the property like laughing and yelling, you know, talking to each other and, you know, over here and okay, I got this and how's that looking? And it just, it was just felt so good and, and just brought such like a relief that I didn't know of attention I was holding. In that team group, we got like a big area of brush to go up pretty big. It's pretty fun. I think that's why we were laughing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was a moment when actually the team group lit off a, an area that has some pines. There's a bunch of pines that were planted here in the uh, 70s, I think. It was this thing they were trying to push uh, landowners to grow these pines as lumber. And they're exceedingly flammable. And most of them are dying because they're not really from here. And I'm, I was off quite a bit of ways with Andres um, sitting by, the, by, by his truck. And this thing goes off and it was so big. And I was, you know... I, my jaw dropped and like terror came up and I looked over at Andres and he just had his arms crossed and he had a big grin on his face. <laughs> and I was like, okay, the fire chief is cool with this. I'm just going to be okay with this. <laughs> That's great. You know, it occurs to me that I, I've, I did a show a while back on um, the psychological effects of climate change on younger people. And one of the things that people are just, they live in fear of wildfires. And if more teens were involved in this, I think it would be a really strong emotional push to, to, to be a healthier person. And I can only imagine that if you let people know ahead of time, we could put it out on the radio show. You could get a team of teens from the coast or Ukiah to come help you out. That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, we're, they're actually, um, the Prescribed Burn Association and Andres are actually coming up later this week and we're going to walk what we did, do a little analysis and make plans for trying to get the rest of the forest done 
this next burn season. Well, let us know. I'd love to come join you and could do a little show on it. Sure. Yeah. That would be great. Well, Abeja and Garnet and Tom, thank you so much for speaking with us. And Thank, thank you. you so much. That was Abeja Hummel, Tom Shaver, and Garnet, their son. The caretakers of Emerald Earth Sanctuary in Anderson Valley. You are listening to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour with Chad Swimmer and Paul Schulman. And now we're going to go to an interview I did with Kyle Farmer, a community education specialist with a focus on Jackson Demonstration State Forest for the UC Cooperative Extension Program. He is also a co-founder of the Mendocino County Prescribed Burn Association. Kyle, how are you doing? Pretty good this beautiful morning. How are you? I'm doing really well. Well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what led to your interest in prescribed burning? So I've, I've had several different careers that I'm not going to get into here, but the common theme has been uh, bridging the gap between academic science and sort of messy on the ground systems building. So for the past nine years, I've been grazing cattle and sheep here in Potter Valley, as well as um, around the county. And one thing you kind of come to when it comes to what, what, what gets called multi-species grazing is you eventually realize you're missing a species. And that species is, is uh, called fire. Um, and so I was really lucky and I've continued to be really lucky. Uh, my wife's dad, Mac McCruder, um, really, you know, has been lighting prescribed fires his whole life. And so um, once I moved here, once my uh, wife, Grace, recruited me, I was a vegetable farmer at the time. Um, he just handed me a drip torch and said, let's get to work. And so that was in 2014. Um, around the same time, I joined the volunteer fire department here in Potter Valley and began taking classes in fire science and uh, kind of continuing to learn about prescribed fire and fire suppression simultaneously. Um, since then, have uh, just really fallen in love with it. Uh, it really almost at a physical philosophical level, I feel like there's so few practices that we do that, that aren't about trying to stop something, but um, really trying to kind of accept certain inevitabilities and, and work with them and work with uh, history and, 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 and really enjoy engaging with nature and shifting things. It's both a kind of a philosophy and a practice. Mm-hmm. So you recently completed the Burn Boss certification. Many of us had no idea that such a thing existed. Can you describe what this means? So I should clarify, I'm a couple signatures short of certification in my task book. Um, I, I plan on being certified by the fall once the prescribed fire uh, season opens back up again. Mm-hmm. Um, the class that I got to attend was actually the second class. The first one happened in May of 2001. And unless something's changed since the last time I hung out with the other uh, prescribed fire geeks, um, there's only two people certified. So it's, it's brand new. Um, Lania Quinn Davidson from University Cooperative Extension up in Humboldt, along with her colleague uh, Jeff Stackhouse, were sort of the pioneers in trying to figure out how to bring the prescribed burn association model from other states uh, here to California. Um, Harold Biswell was sort of the pioneer of the last time uh, we tried to have a prescribed burn sort of revolution. Um, and then in the 80s, there was a, another attempt 
so they they did a little traveling. I think they were in Florida and Nebraska, um, bringing this model, which is a very just basic peer to peer network of people who kind of bridge the gap between the labor force that it takes to safely do a prescribed fire and the kind of individual level of, of land ownership or land engagement. So you just come together and help each other burn. So one of the things that they quickly realized was missing, and this is also something that has precedent in other states, is a certification program for people who aren't, you know, the, the most casual participants, but as you get kind of more interested and more committed and want a, more of an education and also a way to demonstrate to the fire suppression agencies that you have the capacity to pull off and more complex burns than your most basic uh, PBA burn. They began the process along with many other, many other people of putting together a certification process for prescribed fire, for private land prescribed fire burners. And so there's a sort of a long prerequisite program where you take um, classes that are otherwise sort of for, for sort of upper division fire suppression people. And you begin the process of, of, of getting your prerequisites. And then there's a week long kind of intensive class to hammer out the details of, of really putting together a, you know, a moderately complex prescribed fire. Mm-hmm. So there's like a long history of burning in the West, obviously thousands of years. And we hear about, you know, sacred burns and, um, indigenous led burning and now prescribed burns and coming from your perspective, which would be obviously a non-indigenous perspective, how do you see this as being part of, you know, the sequence of history and how do these things differ? That's a great question. And I, it's something I think a lot about and sort of struggle with. Um, it is, it is definitely separate. There's also, I've never read uh, a good history of this, but there's no question that the early settlers here were learning, you could say appropriating in some cases, learning from the native people who had been figuring out what it takes to live well here or, you know, something tells me we're going to keep on pushing back the date. It might be 24, 30,000 years at this point. We're now starting to think, and I'm not, I'm not sure what it looked like to begin um, the process of figuring out prescribed fire because it's, it's an amazing scientific process to figure out how to do it. Well, the amount of, data that it takes, the amount of really intergenerational data is in some ways beyond what we're, what we're currently capable of. Um, some of the best prescribed fire research is, you know, is 20 year research through the fire and fire surrogate studies that have been happening across the, the, the rest of the country and will soon be coming to the Redwoods finally. And 20 years is nothing, right? So in many cases, the benefits of prescribed fire are intergenerational. And so the indigenous research methodologies that discovered these practices are, are just sort of flabbergasting to consider. You know, cultural burning is, is very different from prescribed fire. I heard Margot Robbins speak uh, not too long ago, you know, pointing out that a cultural burn is a prescribed fire. It does have the benefits of prescribed fire. It can 
reduce fuels, reduce fire risk, the rest of that. Um, a prescribed fire is not a cultural burn. So a uh, cultural burn is, is, is led by indigenous people and with very specific intentions. And um, I have not, uh, you know, I, I think it would be outside of my, what would be appropriate for me to really attempt to um, even try to extract the, the knowledge there. Um, but one thing I have been lucky enough to do is to share uh, some of my prescribed fires with native friends of mine who have then found things that I would have never looked for. Um, so that was kind of has been an interesting experience to to light a prescribed fire based on, you know, in, in this case, sort of wildlife uh, forage availability reasons, and yet to have these co-benefits of the reemergence of important species, um, you know, without any intention to it. It's not a, it wasn't a cultural burn by any means, but there are still co-benefits in, in all directions. Mm-hmm. So you just went out yesterday and toured sites of recent prescribed burns on the Emerald Earth property with the people we spoke to earlier in the show. What did you see? So em- Emerald Earth is an example, uh, I would say, of some very brave landowners. One of my favorite authors, Donna Haraway, uses the phrase um, staying with the trouble. So I'd say they're staying with the trouble on how to do right with their land. So when they, before they lit any burns, I was out there uh, on a site visit with this prescribed burn association. And it was complete. It was kind of my first site visit outside of what I could call my comfort ecosystem. I was there with Norm Brown, who's a retired Cal Fire legend who who's one of the founders of the Prescribed Burn Association. We were helping them with prospective burn units. And he had uh, you know, significant experience with both prescribed fire and fire suppression in places like Anderson Valley. And so I've just been you know, a pure learner on those things. I've only done a, done a few prescribed fires outside of you know, my kind of uh, chaparral and oak woodland comfort ecosystems. So luckily... Uh, not long after that, Anders Avila and Angela DeWitt joined the PBA from Anderson Valley, and they better understood the risks of that particular place. Um, Andres has also completed the uh, the state uh, certified burn boss program, and as far as I know, he's still waiting on a signature or two. But he might have he might have pulled it off. So when they joined, Andres sort of took the lead, and Angela took the lead in the Anderson Valley area. And so this was the first time I had visited since that. And it was just, it's really impressive to see. They're beginning to develop the sort of heterogeneity that we're looking for with prescribed fire. Um, you know, there are places that they feel burn too hot, but when heterogeneity is your goal, um, sometimes mistakes become part of that success. So their forest is opening up. Um, they're seeing in some places uh, resprouting of the redwoods that were harvested as part of their non-industrial timber harvest plan that they put together with Chris Blanco, a forester. And so they're developing that, you know, multi-age structure that there are a lot of species that appreciate. And meanwhile, especially with some of their ridgetop burns, they're beginning to disconnect their watershed, their fire shed from the adjacent fire shed, which means that um, the next time that a wildfire comes through, there's more of a probability that the wildfire will stay at a scale that's sort of appropriate 
for the rest of the species that utilize the land. With the beetles around, there are, there are prescribed fires that if we had experienced a, a, an extreme frost, when we do experience another extreme frost that helps us move on from, from this beetle outbreak, there are prescribed fires that are currently resulting in tree mortality that under, without that secondary stressor, secondary disturbance of the beetle outbreak, you'd see, you know, your, your kind of ideal prescribed fire understory burn with low tree mortality. Right now we're seeing higher tree mortality than we would otherwise see because of the secondary disturbance of the beetles. So that is, it's 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 messy. It's hard to figure out. And landowners like um, Emerald Earth are also, you know, through visitations um, from the PBA and from Mike Jones, our forestry advisor, for example. You know, he is in the process of putting together what will be an incredible study at Jackson State Forest with Pascal Burrill and Rob York. Pascal Brill is up in Humboldt and Rob York has uh, spent his career at Blodgett uh, uh, Research Experimental Research Forest in the Sierras as part of the fire and fire surrogate study that has been looking at these um, issues of prescribed fire, uh, prescribed fire plus thinning, um, thinning plus mastication plus prescribed fire, sort of what permutation of, of management objectives is going to have the best outcomes. Um, and so without, uh, you know, really brave landowners, like I said, like the Emerald Earth, you know, we were out there looking at some of the places where they had a masticator come through and then did a prescribed fire. And that really in the Redwoods is an unknown fire behavior, you know, masticated wood chips. There's really no fuel models to understand how those fires are going to behave. So, you know, by integrating the university level research with really brave, experimental, curious, um, open-minded landowners like Emerald Earth, we're able to, you know, further perfect some of these research methodologies before we begin the bigger studies. I'm just so grateful to them. I wanted to talk a little bit about the heterogeneity and just... Um give an example from something that I recently saw. I was up in Lassen National Park near Butte Lake for a week and walking around in the very northern end of the giant Dixie Fire. And I'd never been anywhere like that before and seen this incredible mosaic of different rates, different kinds of burns, where in some places every tree was dead and then 300 yards away, there were trees that were, you know, large 350-year-old Jeffrey and Ponderosa pines that were burned at the bottom and in fine shape. And then seeing how the ground was cratered from um, subterranean burning and also seeing that, you know, this is just less than a year later, how many pine seedlings were all over the ground and seeing the beauty of it. Um, I don't think people really understand the the idea of the heterogeneity, the mosaic of different types of burning. Can you talk about that? Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned the word beauty because it's a you know so much of our intuitive perception of ecosystem health is 
is really an aesthetic, is an aesthetic judgment, right? We, we sort of, we sort of feel beauty and we see beauty. And in some cases we are perceiving ecosystem health. And in some, in some cases we are sort of expressing an enculturated perception of beauty onto a landscape. And in some cases, one thing I'm sort of fascinated by, I, I had, I was a couple classes short of an art history minor in college and, and sort of the European landscape painting and how much European landscape painting uh, affected, uh, you know, settler colonial perceptions of beauty. Huh. Um, so I, I had an interesting kind of similar experience, uh, bailing hay after the 2017 fires. And I would go to, as I would, as I would driving up and down a field, east to west, east, west to east, east to west, west to east. And so, so the fire had burned the east facing hills and had not burned the west facing hills huh. and so it was this very sort of mesmerizing experience you know you're on the tractor all day long in the heat you're you're you're, you're driving towards the um, west facing hills with this sort of homogeneous green hillside and then i would turn the tractor around turn around and drive back towards the east facing hills towards this now heterogeneous burn structure. And in this case, it's what I was looking at wasn't where the fire had pushed through the night of the wind event, but where it had backed in the, it must've taken 10 days after that. So you'd have the first wind event push fire, devastating fire um, in, in, in so many ways. And then you would have the, the flanking fire that then turned into a backing fire as it creeped you know, towards our home ranch in, in Potter Valley. And that sort of uh, mesmerizing day going back and forth, sort of, I feel like I reset my mental perception of beauty and saw the beauty now. And I see the beauty now in these kind of heterogeneous landscapes. And you, you mentioned the, the, soil, the soil aspects too. I mean, in some cases, the, you could imagine in the, the Lassen area a, a prescribed fire that might have even had some of the same fire severity, heterogeneity with the above ground biomass, but might have avoided some of that deep soil cratering because in winter burning, you, you generally, the duff layers are, are wet. So in many of the fires that I've lit, and, in, and I think the way we'll try to understand burning in the redwoods, um, many people have argued that it's going to be sort of trying to lick off the surface fuels once one one fire at a time, without letting it get into the duff layers. So that is that is a big concern with fire is the soil aspects. Um, I think you can make all sorts of interesting observations about the wildlife benefits of burning above ground biomass and and altering above ground biomass, but. When it comes to burning down into the soil, I mean, you're, you're talking about a recovery period of thousands of years. So that's something that if we can, if we can shift the, the scale of fires, you know, our fire suppression agencies catch small fires every day, right? So we have lots and lots of little tiny fires that we never even hear about. And then every once in a while, one gets away, usually because of pretty um, impossible weather conditions. And then those are the fires that kind of turn into the campaign fires. So if you were to graph that, you would see lots of little fires on one side of the graph 
and then you'd see these big fires on the other. And so there's this sort of missing middle um, that Stephen Pine, the historian Stephen Pine, talks a lot about is sort of shifting those those fires towards the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that we can that we can do with prescribed fire. And you can also, you know, in some cases like the the landscapes that you're talking about where for whatever reason, it might have been a, a day-night pattern. It might be that some of the places you were, you were going through burned at night, and so they burned with less severity. And then the next day picked up, and maybe the humidity dropped, and then you had a high-severity patch. Or in some cases, if you're in parts of the Mendocino National Forest that you can correlate to the pyrocumulonimbus clouds, those tend to uplift and then drop out and that's another place where they'll miss, they'll miss, miss trees, miss entire sections. Along with in the south, there's rolling effects of fire, where fire will roll forward like a wave and leap over entire stands of trees and create these, these leftover patches that are miraculously untouched. So there's all sorts of fire dynamics that are causing that level of heterogeneity, even in these otherwise extreme events. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about, briefly, the Mendocino County Prescribed Burn Association and how people can access it and how it can help people who want to improve the fire resiliency situation in their own neighborhoods. So, yeah, you know, the Mendo PBA, I, I like to describe us as a listener. I mean, we are, we're, we're just a way for interested people to get together and learn about fire and put fire on the ground. The way to sign up for the Mendo PBA. Um, so I'll list this out. cemendocino.ucanr.edu slash fire resources slash prescribed fire. Um, so once you're on that listserv, you'll be connected to all sorts of resources. Our two neighboring counties are, are really, I, I'm, I'm just going to say ahead of us when it comes to the kind of nonprofit side of prescribed fire and they are hosting trainings and I really encourage uh, interested people in Mendocino County to reach out to Terra, the Tribal Eco Restoration Alliance based out of Lake County. Um, if you go to their website, tribalecorestoration.org, you can follow links to a Firefighter 2 training and that's a great way to get started is to get yourself Firefighter 2 certified. Another way to get Firefighter 2 certified is to join your local volunteer fire department anybody has been paying attention to the Board of Supervisors recently, we do need more young people involved with our volunteer fire departments. Yes. And I personally see a, a real opportunity to link volunteer fire departments and prescribed burning. You know, that they are different. There are different things, you know, prescribed fire and fire suppression. But there is no question that learning about fire suppression, getting good at fire suppression is going to help you when you have a slop over on your prescribed fire. <laughs> so there's one other group, um, the Fire Forward in Sonoma County, um, fireforward.org. They'll also host uh, Firefighter 2 trainings, which is, a, like I said, a great way to get started. Um, the Lookout on YouTube, Zeke Lunder, is a really interesting person to um, learn about uh, prescribed fire and just fire behavior from. He'll take you on just an amazing tour of of the of a different of the different landscapes where we've seen fires in the last few years that he's been um modeling and monitoring and then just like you like just like you did chad uh visiting places that have burned and you know a lot of what 
kind of understanding prescribed fire is is being able to anticipate based on conditions at the time what a fire you light might look like you know two three years from now and the best way to do that is to spend time in beautiful places that have burned and just with an absolute open mind to say what species are appreciating this place you know i'm I'm seeing this place as a place where all the trees have been charred and yet that pileated woodpecker seems to disagree with me. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's nothing like visiting and, and enjoying, you know, we, we hear in the news, you know, Mendocino forest has been, you know, ravaged, you know, these words that, that, but they're still beautiful places. So visiting those places and, and learning from them. Well, I'd like to let listeners know that we're going to have all of these resources posted on the Trail Stewards website, MendocinoTrailStewards.org, and hopefully KZYX will also have a link to this. And we have the longer version of this show on the podcast. I'd like to just see if you can give us a short story about one prescribed burn that you did that was an interesting experience. Oh man, so many. But the, the one that was really one of the most amazing burns I got to experience was when Warren Massey, who's one of our local air quality district managers, uh, allowed me a multi-day burn. And so um, we were able to, based on the topography and based on the distance to the neighbors and, and based on control lines that we had, were able to allow the, the fire to burn all through the night. And so I was able to go up um, from the valley floor. You could see this thin ring of fire as the fire ate its way down the slope. That's what my wife's father describes when he was a child, remembering his dad's prescribed fires doing. Um, He remembers these long rings of fire making their way down the slope. And so I was able to go up and just walk around basically all night long. Um, one of the amazing things about prescribed fire as opposed to wildfire, about working with prescribed fire as opposed to working in fire suppression is that you can linger and meander and sort of get on your hands and knees and see what the spiders do when the fire gets close to them, see what the lizards do when the fire gets close to them. And in some cases, they don't do it. You think the I was watching a lizard, and the lizard just darted into the fire hmm. um, and began consuming now wingless insects that had had their wings burned off by the nice. fire. Nice, Ro- roasted to um, perfection. Roasted to perfection. So that fire at night, I really think it'll. It's going to take us a few years, maybe even decades, but I, I think that we'll find. And also, if you read some of the old stories of some of the first Native American firefighters and, and also modern firefighting techniques. I mean, firefighters do a lot of work at night. One of the things we're going to see change is with the recent Blackhawks that Cal Fire has, um, they're going to start being doing, they're going to start doing water drops at night. Hmm. So fire at night, just like we know from around the campfire, fire at night behaves differently Humidities tend to be higher. Um, I really wonder sometimes how much you know we're going to look back and be like, "What were we doing? Doing anything during the day when it came when it comes to prescribed fire?" Yeah. Um, 
so that was an amazing experience is getting to be and you know you you call it dragging fire so i was dragging dragging fire around uh, with the mcleod kind of moving it around at night helping it skip places so that that was probably my favorite experience well thank you so much kyle this has been an incredibly fascinating interview and we hope to talk to you again in the fall after the fire season or maybe in the winter. Well, thanks, Chad. I appreciate it. That was Kyle Farmer, a Potter Valley resident, co-founder of the Mendocino County Prescribed Burn Association, and also one of the community education specialists from the UC Cooperative Extension in Hopland, California. And you can find a list of the resources that he mentioned at www.mendocinotrailstewards.org. Go to the Media Links page, where you can also find a link to this interview. Thank you so much for spending this time with us here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. The third Tuesday of every month focusing on forest conservation, forest management, logging, and specifically Jackson State Forest. We hope you've learned as much as we did making this show. To hear past editions, go to www.mendocinotrailstewards.org, the media links page, where you will find all past episodes archived. You can also listen on kzyx.org, archive slash jukebox, or even better, get the KZYX Public Affairs app wherever you get your podcasts. With this convenient click, you can hear any of the many great shows put on entirely by volunteers on KZYX, listener-supported public radio for Mendocino County. We would like to thank all the people who took part in this show and all the people who are out there trying so hard to change the management of this gem of a forest. In the words of Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, also mother, scientist, decorated professor, practitioner of traditional ecological knowledge and enrolled member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. What we do here matters. Everybody lives downstream. The views and opinions expressed here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour represent only the hosts and the guests of this show, not the management or staff of KZYX. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.